truth prevail over unbelief. Amen. We're all like that father who Jesus healed his son and testified, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's where we stand most often. The text we read in Mark chapter 14, probably very familiar. Of course, the most important feast of the Old Testament was the celebration of the Passover. The feast which we read about from Exodus 12 commemorated God's deliverance of the people from Israel, people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, and commemorated God's protection over them from the death angel, or as the ESV translates it, the destroyer, who killed all the Egyptians firstborn. You recall as we just read together, God instructed his people to take the blood of the lambs and smear it on the doorpost, and thereby the destroyer would pass over any house marked by the blood and would therefore escape the judgment visited upon Egypt. So it's no coincidence that the Passover was at hand when Jesus, who is the Christ, the Lamb of God, came to Jerusalem to suffer and die. That's no coincidence, obviously. Because it is his blood shed for his people that causes his people to escape judgment, the ultimate judgment. Praise God for that. And so it's also no coincidence that all of this is coming to Jerusalem and the celebration is at hand of the Passover as Jesus, who Paul said is our Passover lamb, was about to give himself for the will of the Father for the sake of the church. Now at this point, if you're familiar, Mark has just finished writing about the Olivet Discourse where Jesus had answered the disciples' questions regarding the destruction of the temple and his coming in clouds of glory and the signs that would accompany, accompany that betrayal. I mean, accompany that incident. We'll talk about that, actually, when we get to Joel. But from that teaching and that triumph and exaltation where Jesus is teaching on the Mount of Olives, chapter 14 shifts to this dark scene foreshadowing the suffering and the gloom of the trail. This is the longest chapter in Mark in Mark's gospel. And of course, it focuses on what we call the passion of the Christ, which means simply his suffering and soul of life. So Mark tells us it's only two days until this Passover event, this Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now that was two separate things, but they're kind of rolled into the same week. And so often, if you read the New Testament, especially a reference to the Passover might mean the day of the Passover. It might mean the, the days of unleavened bread. If there's any amount of time in there it could refer to. Sometimes it was seen as just one event. But during this event, of course, thousands of extra people descend upon Jerusalem to commemorate this event. Numbers. I don't know if anybody really knows. Uh, a lot of speculation that it grew possibly to close to a million people, but certainly uh, probably three, four, five hundred thousand people. There was a lot of people there this time, <clears throat> which kind of makes more sense if you've ever read the Bible and wonder why can't they just go get Jesus and take him? They couldn't find him. There was a lot of people. There was a lot going on. And of course, they mentioned themselves they were afraid of his popularity. 
popularity anyways. But they were also during this event to do just like Exodus 12 commanded to do, is take a lamb on the afternoon of the Passover and slay that lamb and then consume it later that evening. So all this is taking place. All these people are there for this exciting event in anticipation. But for Jesus, there's this agony of soul because he knows what's coming. So Mark tells us that chief priests and the scribes are seeking to arrest him and to kill him. Now this is the what we know as the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, so to speak, made up of Pharisees, scribes, the ruling body. Matthew, in fact, in his account of this very thing, tells us they met at the palace of the high priest Caiaphas to do their plotting. It's a great place to get together if you want to kill somebody. At the palace of the high priest. And so that's where they met. And John tells us, in fact, this is not very long after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. In fact, one of the things that the Jewish leaders plotted, if you read John's account there, uh, You'll find out they were plotting other just to kill Jesus. Was that they were mad that everybody was believing in Christ because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. So they came up with a very genius plot there too. They were going to kill Lazarus again. Always, I always laugh when I read that. He'd been dead four days. Jesus called him out. He comes out of the tomb alive and well. And the only thing that humans could come up with to do to fix it was to kill him again. They didn't have any more. Uh, they didn't have any more brilliance than that. But of course it says they were smart enough not to try to do it during this feast because Jesus' popularity has somewhat grown um, uh, in within the population. And they were afraid of an uprising because he just raised this man from the dead and they wanted to try to play it cool and catch him at a good time. So all this is going on. There's this sort of dark background scene behind all this evil plotting going on. The Jewish leaders put out a bounty for Jesus. According to John, they said, we'll, we'll pay for his arrest. But in the midst of this, Mark sandwiches this great story that seems to be a side story at first, but you recognize that it's really part of the entire broader narrative of the Passion. The story of this lady and this happening in Bethlehem house of a former leper named Simon. Obviously he was a former healed leper or they wouldn't have all been there with him, gathered around him. Now John, Mark doesn't tell us who this is. John says this lady who had this alabaster flask was Mary, the sister of Martha, who was both the sister sisters of Lazarus. She breaks into these men's conversations with Mary not cool at that time for a lady to walk in the midst of men's conversation and just begin to talk and she hadn't been asked to either serve food or asked to do something. It's just a great a great picture for the way people were able to act and react around Jesus. She breaks into this conversation and breaks this costly perfume bottle or alabaster flask and pours it on his head. If you read John's account, he says she poured it on his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. A lot of people say, see, there's a contradiction in Scripture. But I like the way R.C. Stoll describes it. He says, ah, she just gave it back. It's from head to toe. She just 
poured it all over. The whole bottle. She wasted none of it on the ground. She put it all on him. And then wiped his feet. But verse 4 says, There were some who said indignantly. This word really more than we can see. They were angry. They were so mad that this had happened. That this ointment, in their opinion, was wasted. Now Mark says here there were some indignant. Matthew says his disciples were indignant. And John says it was Judas who was indignant. Probably a little bit of all of it. I think the disciples at this point probably were just as upset as Judas for different reasons. So later John having the whole picture and being new why Judas was so indignant. Because Jesus said, Judah said, according to John, this was a waste because he cared not for the poor, but he held the money bag and was accustomed to taking some of the money for himself. That's a pretty strong statement. We know it, it is true. But Jesus says something about Mary's gift here. And something about Mary. And I think it's very important to note these things. He says, leave her alone. So he stands up for it, but he says this too. She has done a beautiful thing to me. And not only that, she's done all she could do. At least she's done, he said, what she could do. Because he goes on to say, she anointed my body beforehand for burial. Now the thing is, in Matthew's account, he had just told the disciples, we're going to Jerusalem because the Son of Man must suffer and die there. But they couldn't even see that this had any, this waste, in their opinion, of this pouring out of the perfume had anything to do with what was coming up because they still didn't even understand what Jesus was saying about going to Jerusalem and dying. This is such a beautiful story and picture sandwiched into all this plot to kill Jesus, Judas selling him out, and then here's this Mary, and this perfume, and this anointing. Right in the middle of all of this ugliness, the ugliness of betrayal, the ugliness of virtue signaling. Hey, virtue signaling is nothing new, alright? So don't think that's something that our culture just came up with. Here they were saying, man, if I'd had that money, I would have sold it and give to the poor. Which they obviously didn't really mean. They could have done that and they weren't doing it. Now, it was customary during the Passover to give to the poor. That was part of being there and doing this. And so I'm not saying it's completely out of context, but usually virtue signaling is not, right? It's got to have some tie to truth for people to say, oh, you know, that's a good point. We should have been giving this to the poor. And then we find out Judas said that, but all he wanted was, he was mad because that was money he could have put in his pocket and took some, you know, took a draw out of. But in the midst of all this ugliness and pretending, Jesus says she's done a beautiful thing. It's just such a beautiful picture of life, period, and the world we live in, in the world of Christendom in which we exist, all this ugliness, but yet there's beauty when we're able to see it. God is doing things that are right. He's saving his people. He's building his church, even in the midst of ugliness, sinfulness, and 
wretchedness. He says, she anointed my body for burial. You may recall, he would not receive another anointing, right? He, he, he's dead, hanging out, and buried before any of that could take place. And if you remember, uh, one of the gospel synoptic, uh, the synoptic gospels tell us the reason the women were going to the tomb that morning was to properly anoint his body because it had not been done. Of course, he wasn't there for that, right? So this is the only anointing. This is such a beautiful thing. He got his anointing, but it was here. And he says, she's done what she could. It's as if this is the only thing she had. At least it was the most precious thing she had. The most precious thing she could find. And Jesus said, she's done what she could. It's very reminiscent of the widow's might. They're a little different. You have this widow who brought a farthing or whatever, just this mere nothingness. But she gave it. And you remember Jesus said in the midst of all the pharisaical virtue signaling at that time, this woman is given the best gift because she's given them everything she had. In much the same way, this Mary, wherever she came up with this vial of, or this alabaster flask of this nard as it's called, or spike nard, I think the King James says, Basically, just a, I think it's from India, a precious, expensive perfume. Somehow, maybe it was a, a family heirloom. It had been passed down. Who knows? These were, these were very costly and precious. In fact, I don't remember if it's here, but in the, in the Gospels, we know it's 300 denarii. It was worth a whole year's wage. Most people would make on a, a good wage was a denarii a day. So this was a year's worth of earnings. So in a way, it's okay. Thought, this is a waste. You, you shouldn't use much of this. You used all of it. But this lady took the most costly thing she knew of. The most costly thing that she had probably and ever held. She put it all and anointed Jesus' body. Possibly didn't even really know what she was doing. Didn't know the implications of it. Probably not. But Jesus understood it. Hey, let her alone. She's done a good thing. She's done what she could. In fact, she's provided the anointing for my burial. And still, this just goes right over their head. They don't get it. And he says this. And it's great because we're doing this very thing right now. Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in her memory. And here we are doing that. And I've already, we've read the gospel and I hope by the end of this thing, I will be able to present the gospel as always because everything in scripture is fulfilled in Christ. And it all goes to him. And it's all about his life, death, and burial, and resurrection. Everything points to that and looks back to that. So that's where we're headed. So what else do we take from something like this? I tried to come up with a bunch of points and today I just really came up with one. So, but I'm not. I'm not going to be very much longer because this is one long point, okay? But here's, I think, at least something to take away from this. To be reminded of the historical beauty of God's presence, providence. To be reminded of the historical beauty of God's providence. And I know if you hear me preach, at least one point from every week has something to do with providence. I don't know what else to do. I mean, I see that on every page, right? 
I'm trusting that God's in control of all this stuff. If not, we're in trouble. Be reminded of the historical beauty of God's providence. These are not just good stories. The Bible's full of them. We have an astounding beauty, a marvelous canvas, if you will, on which the Lord has painted his plan of redemption. Just this week again, I've heard of one of the one of the popular evangelical preachers in Atlanta. Yet again, trying to describe and explain why we don't need the Bible, why it's not important. And why we just need Jesus, we don't need the Bible, which has so many problems within itself. I don't have to explain to you people because y'all are too smart to fall for something like that. But it is important because we live in a world that is continuously dismantling the scripture, getting away from the authority of scripture, saying we can have church and Christianity and everything without scripture. But I want you to see that even though these are good stories, great stories and great moral lessons, the Bible is so much more than that, way more than that. It's a history of redemption. As has been said so often, history really is his story. It's the story that God has. His plans come into fruition. Things don't just happen. Egypt had a purpose. The bondage of God's people had a purpose. Pharaoh served a purpose. His hardening served a purpose. And that same picture is painted over and over. Humanity in trouble. Humanity in dire straits. God's plan of redemption unfolding. God glorifying himself in every aspect of human history. I didn't accidentally pray earlier that God would glorify himself even in the tragedy in Texas. I hope God and trust God can and will do that. He's always glorified himself even in tragedy. Now, I know that people look at folks like us and say, y'all don't understand God at all. How dare you think that God could do anything good out of something like that? Simply because the Bible says all things work together for good. I don't glorify the situation. As Jonathan said, we don't pray for persecution. And I don't pray for God to do something horrific so he can be glorified in it. But I have to trust that something horrific happens, God can and will be glorified through it. If not, again, I don't know what to say to people. I would never stand again at a funeral. And preach a funeral if I didn't believe that God was glorified and good came out of bad stuff. Even death. The bad parts. Part of it. The pharaohs of the world. The mundane parts. The slaying of the lambs. The wiping of blood. Smearing it all over doorposts. All of this painting for us. The plan of God to redeem his people for himself. Even humans thinking that they are better than they really are. Think that they are bettering themselves. The Sanhedrin thinking that the world would be better off if we got rid of this Jesus. Certainly our plans would be better if he wasn't in the way. Sort of a picture of every ruling class of humans throughout history. <clears throat> Selfishly setting themselves up for what they see as success. All the while just playing the part they are designed for. And that's the amazing thing. You read scripture and you find out even false prophets have a purpose. That doesn't make any sense to the human mind, but it makes sense in God's economy. Even people who are stealing and robbing and killing, never satisfying this hunger or lust or, 
of greed that they have, this want, even those people also are carrying out the vine purpose. And that doesn't excuse them. Nobody has the right to say, well, do evil things because God will be glorified in it, or I can part of God's plan of redemption. No. Our confession says it this way. God, the good creator of all things in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things from the greatest to the least by his perfectly wise and holy providence to the purpose for which they were created. He governs according to his infallible foreknowledge and free and unchangeable counsel of his own will. His providence leads to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. So if God has used everything from Pharaoh's to Nebuchadnezzar's to Judas, I mean Judas's, for his glory, and for the redemption of his people, then I think we would do ourselves well to be aware that he's doing the same thing today. Sometimes I look at think what purpose could they serve sometimes the buffoonery on television on social media or in the government wherever it is I look at it and think what on earth this is the goofiest some of the stupidest decision I mean how on earth and then I have to be reminded of this God could use Nebuchadnezzar God could use Pharaoh God could use Judas if God could use this lady breaking an alabaster flask over his body you know what God's got all this under control, and every evil and vile and wicked person the world is under God's providence. Yes, we ought to fight against evil, we ought to fight against wickedness, it ought to be a concern to us, we can't ignore it. But man, we need to take time to look for in all the evil and the wickedness the moments of alabaster flasks being broken and poured out. Check yourself and be sure that you are doing the beautiful things. That you're doing all you can. God, remember, loves sacrificial giving. Selfless acts of worship. Hey, it's not simple to preach. Do what God's called us to do. I mean, sometimes uh, those of us in the circles that we tend to hang out in, there's a lot less of that. We almost think, well, I can't dare say do works. I mean, that's evil. Well, I'm not going to dare tell you don't do what God's commanded you to do. What Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I say. You'll do what I command. Be careful to do those things. These selfless acts of worship. I'm not sure this Mary had any idea that what she was going to do will be proclaimed from now on until Jesus comes back as an act of beauty. She just wanted to do the only thing she could do. When's the last time you worshipped God in the beauty of holiness, as the psalmist says? Perhaps Mary knew nothing more than the fact that Jesus loved her, that he had brought her brother back from the dead. And she did what she could do because of those things, but maybe she really knew there was something more to Jesus. It seems like these people, like the Marys in Scripture, the ones that seemed so insignificant, it seemed like they had at times a better glimpse of the glory of Christ than some of the other people. It's almost like these insignificant ones 
are the ones that got him. They understood, no, there's something about this. Like the Samaritan woman at the well. Hey, you, this man spoke to me things that nobody's ever spoken before. He knew things about me nobody else knew. Maybe she knew that he was worth anything and everything that she could give. And that she could live without a family heirloom and the most valuable earthly possession she had. But she could not live knowing that she had passed up the opportunity to anoint the Lord of glory. I think that's the difference. While Judas couldn't stand a thought of this money being wasted, this lady couldn't stand a thought of this opportunity being wasted. She could not cherish anything more than she cherished this Jesus. Man, that's a humbling thought. That's a convicting thought for all of us. Because how often we love the world and the things of the world more than we love our Lord. Let's just be honest. How often we, like Judas, and perhaps some of the other disciples, we just think too much of the temporal things rather than the eternal ones. We're so blinded by the temporal things, we can't see the eternal Christ sitting in the room with us, reclining at table. And we think anything done to him would be a waste. So much application here. You can just go on and on and on. So many passages like these are just so full and rich of application and teaching. There's one final thing here. And acknowledging his sovereignty and his providence over all of redemption and history. Jesus made one other important statement that our culture would do well to pay attention to. Especially the, this church culture that has somehow popped up. It seems to be more in line with Judas and wanting to make sure that they look good in the world's eyes. than they do in God's eyes. Jesus said this. Worried about the poor, really? Hey, the poor you'll always have with you. It's never inappropriate to care for the poor. But I think the point is that comes after the proper worship of God and the proper understanding of who God is and what He has done through His Son. We have to seek the works of righteousness, which I've said, toward fellow men. But we live in the middle, middle of this sort of uh, rejuvenated liberation theology, this idea of social justice and a social gospel movement that would tell people just the opposite of this. You got to do all the stuff that needs to be done and that we decide needs to be done because Jesus came to end oppression and poverty. But Jesus says, the poor you'll always have. He didn't say, go out and do this and end poverty. He didn't applaud their concern for the poor. But he did condemn them for their lack of concern for the Savior. The concern for the poor will come when you have a proper perspective of God and the gospel. So again, taking social issues is a gospel issue. It is a truth, but it's not the truth the way they're trying to make it out to be. Because if you're born again, of God, you will be concerned about the things that need to be concerned about. You will be concerned about the hungry and the poor. And you people here are. We often get to help people because of the way we've been blessed. And that's an awesome thing. And we should do that. 
Those things will not commend you to God and God will look down and say, oh, you care for the poor, therefore enter my kingdom. Because clearly Jesus said, there will be many in that day who say to me, did we not prophesy in your name and do great works in your name? And he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Because what God is most concerned about is his people knowing him, being converted by the gospel. And yes, then the works come from that. Jesus could have easily said here, hey, even though your motives are wrong, the aim is correct. Yeah, we should give to the poor. Don't do anything but help the poor. Rather, he was very clear that there will be a time for that, and it's proper. But that doesn't come before you find yourself in a proper posture before the Lord. But we got thousands, if not millions of people working every day to hope that God will accept them based on what they do. We have the gospel which says the only hope you have is that blood that was smeared on the doorpost, that blood that was smeared on the cross, that was poured out for your sin. And the only hope you have of not being destroyed by the destroyer, which is God himself, is that you are covered by the blood of Jesus. And the only way to do that is by grace through faith, not by works of righteousness. And so if you're depending on anything other than that, stop. Repent and believe. Or else you too will perish. And you like Judas or others. Judas is such a sad story. He was with Jesus every day, almost for three years. And yet, after seeing a year's worth of salary poured out on the ground, he was willing to take maybe a month's worth or less to sell him out. Betray him. Because in our human nature. If we're not careful. We'll start thinking the way to God's religious works. And that's been proven. For years and thousands of years. Religious works. Deeds of conscience. Humanitarian efforts. All those things. They're not bad. Only Christ can make a person righteous. Only Christ can deem somebody righteous. Not according to works. You can't help but think of the rich young ruler when Jesus said to him, okay, if you really want to follow me, sell everything you have and get to the poor and follow me. And he couldn't do that. Why? Because he didn't love him to start with. I'm not sure Jesus would have took his stuff from him, but he asked, are you willing to do this? And he wasn't. That's not Jesus saying, if you ever want to follow me, anybody who follows me, you got to sell everything they got and come to me, follow me. But I think it is a perfect example of this gospel truth. If Jesus is your Savior and it came down to it, you'd be willing to break the top off of an alabaster flask full of the most expensive thing you've ever known and anoint his body because you know he's worth it. It's like the parable Jesus told that the kingdom of God is like a treasure in a field. Once a man discovers it, he goes back with joy, sells everything he has to buy that field. Because he realized nothing he had was worth what that treasure was. Such a beautiful picture of the gospel in the church, but of Jesus as well. There's nothing more valuable than him. And so we are told by Jesus himself, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
Even today, the church is saying worship and discipleship should not be foremost. We should primarily focus on doing stuff, helping people, being in the public eye, making sure people know who we are, what we're doing. If you don't believe that, just open social media. And almost every church around is trying to show you all the stuff they're doing. I'm not saying they're doing bad things. But all the while, I think Jesus, speaking to us from his word, says something like this. I'm not concerned that the world knows who you are, but I'm concerned that my church knows who I am. And once we know who God is and who Christ is, then we can proclaim him to this world who needs to know who he is as well. Man, we need churches who know God. And then the good deeds will come. You have good deeds and then people ask you why you're doing it. You can't even explain to them who God is. What good is that? So yes, the emphasis has to be made on worship and discipleship. And then good works. In that order. This story is so amazing. I wish we could just keep going through the betrayal and all these acts that follow. I read something that a lot of people who study this kind of thing seem to think that the whole passion narrative was at one time recorded in such a way that it could be taught to the church so they could totally memorize it. So that everybody who come to worship could recite the whole passion narrative from beginning to end. It's written in such a way that it was easily memorized. Oh, that was really cool. And they could use it during worship, recite parts of it, sing parts of it. And we need to be that familiar with it. Because this, this is what matters. This is the gospel. And it is beautiful, even in the midst of ugliest. Father, we thank you for your holy word and the truth that it is. Lord, thank you for the passion of Christ. That he considered a joy. This, this cross that was set before him, he considered it a joy. And the cross was not just the crucifixion. It was all this cup that he picked up and drank to the bitter end. The cup of suffering, the cup of, even though he was perfectly obedient and sinless, he took the wrath of the destroyer that the people of God might receive his mercy instead. What a beautiful picture. Never get tired of telling that story. And the people of God can never grow weary of hearing it because that's our story. This is our story and our song. Jesus is our Savior and Lord. He has saved us, not based on anything we have done, but because he is a great God, full of grace and mercy. We praise you for that. I ask that all the people of God be reminded of that today. If there be any here who needs to put their faith in Christ, God, that you've already brought them to that realization that they are given surrender and faith to believe. As we celebrate the supper together, We've already read of its purpose. So we celebrate along with those who celebrated the Passover for years. We celebrate the Passover lamb, blood that was shed, the body that was wounded and bruised. God, we acknowledge that our sin being forgiven is the greatest thing that we could think of. Thank you for this dear lady who poured out this expensive fragrance. Because she realized there was nothing more valuable than the one who was sitting in front of her. We pray all this in Jesus' name.